When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, to the latest edition of the Woke Bros, of course, I'm your host, Big Waz, a.k.a. Wozny Lambray, joined as always by my partner in crime, my comrade, the wonderful, the beautiful, Nando Vila. What's up, Nando? How's it going, Waz? I missed you last week, dude. Oh, Wasn't man, you guys, you guys killed that episode, man. Like, y'all put me up on game on Latin American politics and the there listeners thoroughly enjoyed it i saw we got some great feedback so thank you for that and this week we got a special guest our brother joshua khan russell of choose democracy uh he's an activist an organizer just an all-around mensch um thank you for joining us this week on today's show (laughs) tom cotton has already started his his campaign for for the presidency in 2024 the guys, you know, he's getting his frequent flyer miles in, man. He doesn't have a primary challenger in Arkansas, so he's free to do essentially whatever the hell it is he wants with this time right now. And he's choosing to get a leg up on the competition for 2024, which, as you know, I'm no mathematician, but that's four years from now. We're going to get into what it means for Tom Cotton to be already running for president. But first, the GOP's at it again. <laughs> They're they're clearly getting smoked in the polls nationally everywhere, battleground states, uh, typical Republican strongholds in places like Georgia and Texas. They're in dogfights over there. They can see the writing on the wall. And so basically they're trying to put a monkey wrench in this thing at every single turn. And in the courts where, you know, now that they've got six conservative Supreme Court justices, They can essentially do whatever they want if it ever has to come to that. And um, they're doing it everywhere. Uh, And, and of course, they're using Bush v. Gore as an example of exactly what they think they should do in case they get creamed in November. Uh, And quite frankly, obviously, it's disgusting, but this is par for the course for the GOP, right? Like, we talk about it every day on this show. Uh, They're the party that understands how to will power, and they do it in the open. This is not back channel. This isn't in secret. They're telling everybody, telegraphing what they want to do, right? You see some of the ballot box, box initiatives in Texas and Georgia where they're limiting where people can go for early voting, mail-in voting. This uh, Trump is, you know, he's empowering his cronies at places like the Postal Service to sabotage people who don't want to co- go in and vote. Um, it's obvious desperation. Like, like, I've never seen this before in a national campaign so openly and brazenly just trying to thwart democracy. Uh, Nando, um, please sort of get into what these guys are doing a little bit more in depth in the different states around us. 
Well, yeah, I think a, a good place to start for everyone is there's an HBO documentary that just came out directed by Billy Corbin and produced by Adam McKay called 537 Votes. It's about how the 2000 election was stolen from Al Gore by the Republicans um, with the help of uh, you know some very corrupt shenanigans in Miami-Dade County where I grew up. And I remember that time very, very well. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's, and it's going to happen again. I mean, they're going to try again to steal the election they're doing they're they're laying the groundwork for it um they're like you said they're they're limiting the uh the amount that people can vote they're limiting access to the vote but even if they do lose they, they are almost certainly going to try to do some sort of challenge in the courts to overturn the results. Um, they, you know, Brett Kavanaugh has already um, laid the groundwork. He's already citing uh, Bush v. Gore as a legal precedent, which they claimed at the time they wouldn't uh, cite it as legal precedent. Um, Brett Kavanaugh, I remind you, was a lawyer at the time for the Bush uh, campaign, helping them uh, steal the 2000 election. Now he's on the Supreme Court. Uh, so uh, our guest today, Joshua Con Russell. You are on the forefront of the battle to stop that, to stop what you guys are calling a, a coup, um, you know, the, the, the sort of stealing of an election, a, 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 a just overturning the will of the people through what I guess in this case would be the judiciary and, and, and an assist from like Republican state legislatures and governors across the country. Tell us like what, 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 what your organization is doing, what you plan on doing and, and how you just see this election in the next week. Yeah. Well, first, thanks for having me on. It's fun that of course. to make my woke rose debut. Um, but yeah, love you guys. And, and that intro really, I think, nailed it. Oh, shit. People are actually knocking at my door. Hold, we, this is ridiculous. <laughs> federal Hold agents. Federal agents. All right. Thanks for ruining that. Um, hey, man, it's dangerous being a commie, man. Yeah, yeah you know, you know I, I was ready for the feds to be knocking in the uh, <laughs> chaos everywhere. And we're, we're anticipating... Uh, a period of, of potential chaos, you know, starting on election day, moving forward. Um, so we got together, we being, you know, so my background, I've spent the last 20, uh, 20 years, uh, organizing with social movements for racial justice and climate change, doing support work, learning from movements all around the world who have faced all kinds of corrupts and authoritarian governments, uh, including here at home, but also in lots of other places like Turkey and the Philippines. And so I also have gotten to see firsthand how bad things can get, as bad as things are now here, they can get a lot worse. And so when Trump started tweeting out that he wasn't going to accept the election results, a number of us who are nonviolent or active action trainers from a bunch of different social movements, particularly from the labor movement, uh, including some OGs like folks from the civil rights movement. One of our lead trainers was one of the coordinators of Mississippi Freedom Summer in 1964. Um, we all got together and said, we need to actually start preparing um, for a lot of the different scenarios that, that are possible, right? So we're not saying that we think a coup is going to happen, but we're saying that there's enough of a threat of it that it would be foolish to and not prepare, and also that it would be foolish to rely on the Democrats to handle it, right? Because yeah. and, and and we we do. It's good that you mentioned 2000 because we call that a coup, also, right? So like, the Cliff Notes version of what happened was there was election irregularities. The Republicans basically said that it was fraudulent. 
there was a recount. They went to the courts to try to stop the recount. And then as a result, it got punted to the Supreme Court. They gave it to George Bush. And then later when the recount finished, it turns out that Gore would have won. And so there's, you know, there's a lot that we can learn from that. But one of the things is that the Democrats were ready to capitulate um, and that they, (laughs) you know, and, and it's not even just the Democrats, to be clear, like, and I'll talk about this more more in a second, but we learned from a lot of other countries too that like the impulse of the politicians is to negotiate, right? And mm-hmm. so one of the things that that we've learned is that so half of all attempted coups since the 1950s all around the world uh, have failed. Uh, one is because coups are hard to pull off, um, but uh, also a lot of them are stopped by people power. And so the reason why we use that word is not because we're imagining that there's like going to be tanks rolling in the streets. We're not imagining that like, you know that Trump will lose the election, everyone will agree that he lost the election, and then he's just like, I'm not going anyway. Like, we're not we're not imagining those kinds of scenarios. Um, instead, what we're imagining is, you know, so we call it a coup either if um, someone claims victory before all the votes are counted, which he's – yesterday, was it yesterday? I think it was the day yeah. before. He said, like, no, like, we have to call it on the day of. We're not going to count ballots afterwards. Yeah. So he's already saying he wants to try that. Uh, then – or if they try to stop the counting, right? So if, like, there's injunctions filed, whatever, they try to they try to stop ballots from being counted. Um, and then the third is there's a lot of versions of ways he would refuse to accept a loss, including, for example, like, getting, um, you know, these Republican-controlled state legislatures to say, like, yeah, our state – Looks like it voted for Biden, but actually, um, you know, we think most of those ballots are fake and fraudulent because they're mail-in. So we're going to say our states, you know, we're going to send the electors to the electoral college to vote for Trump. And um, and when that happens, the Constitution's actually mad vague about it. Like it's like there's there's a convoluted process, and there's and this isn't you know. Let me also just say this is not unprecedented, both with like the two stuff in 2000, but. In, in that scenario where like states both like the governor and, and the legislators send in different slates of electors, that happened in 1876 when the country Whoa. was even more divided than it was now. And hmm. the only way that it was resolved was basically – it was resolved like the eve of the inauguration through like a grand bargain. And it was like – I can curse, right? I think I actually. Fuck yeah, you can curse. It was the most fucked up bargain that was struck in our, you know, like basically, so it was the end of Reconstruction, right? So after the Civil War, in particular, when a lot of black folks had electoral power, black elected officials, it it there was a bargain that signaled basically the end of Reconstruction and the ushering of Jim Crow, which is the legacy that we're living with now, and that was the way they like saved the process, right? So we don't want to leave it up to that, right? We don't want a repeat of 2000 and we don't want a repeat of that. And so uh, among this this group of of movement trainers, a number of us have worked uh, supporting freedom movements in other countries that have defeated coups, including in places like Thailand in 1992 and Argentina in 1987. And we've been um, drawing on a lot of the research of like how our coups defeated. And uh, there's there's a lot of data there that we can learn from. And one of the things that, that we learn is that like there's actually uh, a lot of agent like what the 
would-be coup plotters want us to believe that we have no agency, that it's like mm-hmm. the shit's going to get settled in the courts and there's nothing we can do about that and we just have to like watch and go along with it. And that's not true, right? Um, but it does mean for us, part of why we started this project called Choose Democracy uh, was to help both psychologically and logistically prepare people to do what is necessary, which is like first, by psychologically prepare, we mean like get over the American exceptionalism, the idea that it can't happen here. Of course it can happen here. It's already happened It's here. already happened here. Exactly. Uh, So that's like part one. And then part two is seeding a strategy framework that's actually grounded in historical data so that when shit gets wild, it's not just like the left flailing in the streets. Because honestly, if we move into activist mode, which is like, that's my normal mode, like we're going to lose. Like if if people come out into the streets and just start being anti-Trump and protesting Trump, that's not going to change anything, right? Because their side's going to come out. We're just going to have the narrative is going to be like, oh, shit's polarized. And and so instead, what we've learned from coups um, in, in a lot of these other countries is that what's going on is there's a contest for legitimacy, right? And so we need to be able to mobilize in order to swing the balance of power in basically, so like the Trump's going to, the, the Trump campaign's going to call it fraudulent and say that they're the real winners. The Biden campaign is going to say that we're the real winners. I'm not saying this is going to happen in a scenario that that might get this way, right? Um, there's there's competing claims to the throne, you know, and so mm. then who's who gets to decide, who gets to arbitrate, who's going to inherit, you know, inherit the throne, and if they try to punt it into various courts, maybe going up to the Supreme Court, these things are not apolitical, right? So they make decisions also based on what's going on in of the course. country at the time, right? And so the reason why we use the word coup is that it gives us time to prepare. Like if, if in 2000 in the approach, if that was called a potential coup, we would have had time to organize and people could have had a sense of their role. And so part of what we've learned is that the logic is not the logic of protest. It's the logic of non-compliance. So what that means is that when, when there's a contest for legitimacy, like, uh, I know I've been talking a lot. Should I just keep going? Is this keep going? Right. Keep going. So like, here's how we think about power, right? So if here I'm making a triangle with my fingers, this is like the roof of a house, right? That's the administration. That's a regime, right? That roof is held up by different pillars. Those pillars are the different social blocks of society. So like the roof is held up by labor. It's held up by capital. It's held up by the media. It's held up by the military. It's held up Mm. by the police. There's all different kinds of institutions, right? Some of those we have control over. Some of those we don't have control over. The ones that we have control over, if you yank the pillars out, it makes it weak enough that the whole roof falls down, right? And so when countries become ungovernable, the would-be coup plot, so like in Germany in 1920, for example, there was uh, an attempt that I put, there's this guy, uh, this right-wing leader named Wolfgang Kopp, right? He got the military on his side. This Great is the military. right-wing guy name. Yeah, totally. Wolfgang Kopp. Yeah, exactly. They're like, uh, sounds like a member of Motorhead or like a <laughs> German punk band. And, um, and so, so they they like went into the Capitol building, declared themselves the new government, and all the government workers who were like career bureaucrats basically were like, we're not putting up with this shit, and they walked out and went on strike, right? All the different industries went on strike because they had a well-organized labor movement, and they shut the country down. And 
they weren't governable, right? And and right. the um and and the people won in four days. Like is that there's all these funny stories from that example of like, you know, he was in there and this was obviously at the time of of typewriters and when like a lot of men couldn't type. And so they went and and all the he had like his manifesto, his declaration, and there was no one there to type it up. So he couldn't even they and, and none of the newspapers would print it. Right? Got you. And so like that's the logic of non-compliance is we're not gonna we're actually gonna not participate. So Here's what our project is doing, which is that uh, we put. Hold on, before yeah, before, yeah, yeah. before you start with that, I just want to jump in with something because I think you brought up something that's important when it comes to the pillars of society not playing ball, right? I think you know, I think if you read a lot of the stuff out there about the courts, specifically, you know, there are people who are sort of jurist fetishist who are like, look. When Trump tried to do things like, say, the Muslim ban, the court stepped up and was like, you can do a ban, but you have to, like, <laughs> do it. You know what I'm saying? Like, there were times throughout the throughout the regime's administration where the court sort of was like, look, man, you got to, like, you got you can't just do this all haphazardly. And, you know, just just disorganized. Just, the administration has proven itself to be dysfunctional, disorganized at every single turn. I think there are people who think that they can't really pull it off. But would it be the regime pulling it off or would it be the GOP as a whole and sort of the mechanisms around the GOP trying to pull this off? Yeah, I mean— to me, it's a chaos situation. Do I, I, I do I definitely don't think they have their shit together. Right, that's for sure. Um, and I don't think they're aligned. But also, the Trump administration's been building legal machinery for this for a year now, and so and there's so many factors at play, um, and and so there's like that's part of the whole contest of legitimacy thing is also about like peeling off defectors. So making it harder for the institutions to go along with the bullshit. Right. And so I'll, we actually have good news that just happened. Right. So in Pennsylvania, house Republicans proposed an open-ended subpoena wielding, um, like a, a commission with the authority to seize uncounted ballots. And they called it the <laughs> election integrity uh, plan. And so they were saying, like, all the all these ballots are going to be fraudulent. So we're going to we're going to basically create this thing that'll seize seize them. And within days of it going public, there was such outcry that a bunch of them, like moderate Republicans bailed. They just jumped ship. They were like, I can't I can't actually sustain this. Right. <laughs> Got you. If there yeah. weren't pressure on them, that would have held together easier. Yeah. yeah, but it crumbled. So that's a good sign, right? And so right. we're trying to make we're we're trying to shift the balance of forces as much as we can in as many of those scenarios. So so you know, we're not saying this shit's definitely gonna happen. In fact, you know, and so the best way to prevent well, the coup yeah. Joshua, uh -huh. I think that I think it's important to, uh, you know, you're, you're not saying that this is definitely going to happen. What I think is definitely going to happen is that they will try something. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, that the fact that they're just going to be like, we're going to count the votes and may the best man win. That is 100 <laughs> percent not, not going to happen. happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Trump is going Trump and the Republicans will try something. The question is, how much stomach do they have? How well organized they are, and how much resistance there is to it. It could be that you know they they do some sort of half-hearted attempt, but it's not enough, and 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 they go away. But something will be tried. I think is 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 obvious to to me at least that. Um, so I think that what you're doing in preparing for any eventualities is obviously the wise thing to do. It's not necessarily going to be like you said, tank on the streets, but something will happen. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so therefore. 
let's get ready, you know? And so that's what we're doing is getting ready and, and getting ready for whatever. And so, which means both we are scenario planning. We are trying to imagine what are the most likely scenarios and we have, and I can share more about that, but it's also about getting organized to be able to handle like, Another thing that's probably going to happen is a lot of misinformation is going to be out there. Basically, there's going to be like a narrative war uh, going on about probably centered on the whole like mail-in ballot thing, but some other kind of election fraudulence thing. They're going to find some random irregularity somewhere and use that to say that the whole thing should be tossed out, whatever. And so what's happening so, – so what we're doing is we made a pledge, and the pledge is just an organizing tool, right? So the pledge has four parts. The pledge is – Number one, we're going to vote. We'll participate in the process. Uh, number two, because we, we wouldn't have much of a leg to stand on to try to defend the integrity of a process we're not even participating in. But then number two, um, we're, we refuse to accept any election results until all the votes are counted. Then number three, we're going to nonviolently take to the streets uh, if a coup is attempted, coup defined in the way that I defined it earlier. Um, and then number four, we're willing to shut down the country if necessary in order to d defend you know, the integrity of the process. And so it's an escalation arc, right? And so we're not saying we're going to get to the point where we need to shut down the country, but um, we are going to be in an environment where like, if shit really does go that way, we will find really shifting terrain and we'll also find unlikely alliances. And so Part of the when, when I was saying talking before about like about you know contest of legitimacy and the logic of non-compliance, the other thing that we're helping people on the left do is get out of there, there's like a left mindset that's like you know so I spent you know the last twenty years as an organizer always frustrated with the way that for example the Democrats constantly tack towards some mythologized center instead of actually building their power in a progressive base. We all hate that shit. But right? that's what makes them Democrats. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But this moment for these next three months, this is a moment where we're going for the center. We're trying to push an uncertain center off the fence, and we're trying to peel off defectors, right? Uh, and we're trying to make it harder for people to carry out illegal orders with like ballot tampering and shit like that, right? And we're trying to make it easier for people to stand up to orders from Republican state legislatures and stuff like that. And so the the, the way that we've been building, so we so far have about 35,000 people who signed the pledge. We're just getting started. There's a lot of other groups who, have, who are doing similar pledges too. And um, when people sign the pledge, they get on our list and we've been training people every other day. We have th thousands of people per training. So we're training thousands and thousands of people in things like action planning and doing some political education on the history of this stuff in getting people ready to, to take action on their own rooting in the principles of like, these are the things that have worked, right? So this isn't an ideological project at all. We're just leaning into like, you know, so like, for example, like, there's a debate on the left about the role of property destruction and looting and violence and nonviolence. We're like, that's an interesting debate. That's not what we're talking about right now. In, in a contest for legitimacy, nonviolent movements work because number one, we're trying to pull everyone and your mom out into the streets. And so uh, it being nonviolent is the best way to get mass participation. And then number two- oh, My uh, mom is have, fully like, radicalized, by the way, I'll have you know. She's throwing my bricks. Mom is, my mom is, yeah, she is, she is a, yeah, she's a hardcore Bernie bro. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, I, uh, I, I used a mom reference when I was uh, on TMBS this uh, last week and, and Leisha was like, my mom is not nonpartisan. <laughs> this is your Leisha pushing back. But um, so, so, and then the other is that like, you know, they, 
they have like a violent street movement, whether it's through these paramilitaries or the Proud Boys or whatever. Um, and so as much of a distinction we can draw between us and them, the better, right? Which is why part of the trainings are also in de-escalation. And so there's, and it's not just, you know, we choose democracy. We're not trying to like organize the whole resistance. We're part of a huge network of thousands of groups who are organizing right now. And there's groups like the Dream Defenders in Florida who are, yeah. you know, a black organization that formed after Trayvon Martin got murdered. They have a grassroots network all over Florida, right? Really important swing state. And right now they're doing trainings in de-escalation to be able to go to the polls. And if there's like armed, you know, assholes trying to intimidate people, um, they're there to de-escalate and, and like protect people at the polls. Like, so, so it's with each step of the way, you know, there's a lot of steps that, that are before the shut down the country step. <laughs> yeah. And so, and that's an example of, of one of them. And they're working with groups like Sunrise um, to, to be doing the same thing. So there's like by now hundreds of thousands of people who've been trained in the, in this kind of stuff and, and how to do action planning and how to do civil resistance and how to do de-escalation, especially in swing States. Um, and then in addition to the trainings, then there's like, we have guides on our website that help map out the scenarios, if that's useful for folks. And then we also have like an action hub that like, now that we're getting closer to the election, um, where, where there's actions that people can plug into. So like what's happening right now, for example, there's a, there's a group called protect our election and they're doing like letter writing campaigns to elected officials, uh, basically with the pledge. And normally I don't think like, I think petitions and letter writing are really, um, over you, they, they're, they're rarely effective <laughs> as a tactic. But in this case, part of what we're doing is trying to like strengthen the spines of those election officials so that if they get orders to throw out ballots or whatever, they'll think twice and know there's like a huge activated base of support that will actually show up, you know? Yeah. And like, similarly, like the pledge is a tool that people are trying to pressure politicians to sign it. Uh, there's a group called hold the line that's doing similar things. There's like, there's a group called protect the results, which is like a big kind of center left coalition of a, like over a hundred organizations that are holding rallies on November 4th that are like set the tone to make sure this is like about democracy and not about Trump. You know, like we want it to not be the circus and instead like, yeah. be, like, and that's the other thing that we've learned from, you know, so like when Argentina, when there was like an attempted coup, they weren't, you know, so there's this like major, like uh, there was this major in, in the military, Ernesto uh, Barrio, I think, Barriero, and uh, they weren't just like, like, you know, banners chanting uh, against him, they were saying, long live Argentina, long live democracy, you know? And so that's, that's like, it's trying to set the tone for that. And then there's the next stage after that would be if they do try to stop the counting of ballots at different board of elections and places like that, there'd be rallies and actions at the board of elections to actually defend the ballots from being interrupted from being counted. So there's, and that's yeah. the thing that we learned from 2002 with, yeah. I mean, sorry, 2000 as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 2000 TOO. Yeah, yeah the Brooks yeah. Brothers riot. It mm -hmm. was, it was crucial. Uh, these like, these Republican operatives posing as like regular grassroots people literally invading the, the, the government building in, in Miami and, and and chanting and harassing ballot counters it's it's crazy i mean it, if people don't remember that time or people are too too young to remember that time um i highly recommend you go watch that documentary ahead of the election and realize just how easy um it was for them to do it mm -hmm. that's what was shocking to me is just how easy it was for them to steal the election how little resistance the democrats put up and it's not like the democrats have gotten more more I radical mean, since we, then. I mean, we've look, at, seen... look at how they laid down for Amy Coney Barrett, yeah. right? Like 
people like like regular kind of rank and file democrats were rightfully horrified when rbg died they flooded the democratic party with donations gave them half a billion dollars in like 3 days of donations to which the democratic party said thank you very much we're going to do literally nothing literally well nothing. no but Just no you down. know they 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 put out you know anonymous anonymous comments in, in vox saying we're pissed you, yeah, them, you guys crossed us this time. Like, all yeah. right, uh, show yeah. show me. Don't tell me. So, Josh, Can I say one other thing. Yes, that, please uh, go, uh, go on. First, uh, just about the Brooks Brothers riots of is course. like that's a thing when when y'all were when Waz you were doing the opening about how the Republicans understand power. They have an inside outside strategy, right? Like they they in two thousand they had an inside strategy with the courts. Uh, and an outside uh, strategy with street protests to actually yeah. disrupt the narrative. And, and and the Democrats never have an outside strategy. No. And the movements that I come out of only have an outside strategy. And so in this moment, it's like, you know, I I do imagine, you know, I, I trust that the Democrats are trying to hire lawyers and stuff like that, but they think that that's enough and it's not enough. And so not only do we need an outside strategy, but in the process of building an outside strategy, and I can talk more about this in, in a little bit if you want to go this way. Hold like, on, I want to contextualize hope, yeah, yeah. that for people listening at home, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we have a modern example of this, the, the Tea Party. That was mm-hmm. some fake-ass... Yeah populist uprising completely and utterly funded by even if you don't want to call the cokes and people like them republican insiders they fund the republican party like that's the republican party literally paying for a fake ass populist uprising say whatever you want about antifa or whoever they ain't yeah. got shit to do with the Dems. <laughs> the <laughs> Dems have nothing to do with any sort of actual organizing principle on the streets. Like normal, no. everyday people, they have no connection with that whatsoever. The closest you might get to something like that was like sort of Bernie Sanders campaign, right? Where it's like, all right, we're we're hiring all these operatives. They're doing outreach in certain communities. They're getting people to understand what our message is. Like you might, I, I guess you can kind of, you know, when it comes to Bernie's campaign and especially, of course, Barack Obama's campaign, but those things, specifically Obama's campaign, was used in service of getting that man elected and nothing else, right? Yes, there mm-hmm. was some sort of organizing principle about it and some sort of um, community organizing principle to it, but it's for one thing. It's for getting yeah. that dude elected and nothing. We never mobilize these people. Well, they for shut literally, it down. They shut it down yeah, after they he got elected. It. There you go. Yeah. Like we don't mobilize because they saw it as a threat. Of course, yeah, exactly. And and throughout Obama's presidency, this kind of outside direct action like really really helped. I mean, the people don't remember, but like the the Dreamers like had to occupy. Yeah. Literally, physically occupy Obama for America offices and shut them down before they were taken seriously by the Obama administration, the, the Dreamer movement, and then not to mention Standing Rock, which people forget was during the Obama presidency. That whole Standing Rock thing, that um, you know. That's so. what I'm. I'm so excited to start to you know, if we get the opportunity to fight Biden, which is that's how I think of voting is I get to choose my opponent. And we, I you love know, that so much. <laughs> what? I love that idea, yeah. that concept, that mm-hmm. voting for somebody is who you are eventually yeah. going to have to fight because yeah, all so of you, the the, you uh, the influences. You let pick the Browns instead of like you exactly, know, the team, right? exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. 
And it's, and it's, I mean, I think that, you know, my whole, so I've been organizing since the late nineties. I never had the luxury of ever imagining that I would have the chance to vote for someone who represented me. I mean, that was never, we never even thought of politicians <laughs> that way until Bernie. That was like the first time we we're like, oh, wow, there's like a lane. There's someone who's not a neoliberal. Like that was a revelation. <laughs> and like, so it's all and under Obama. So we built we built the Keystone XL campaign, which was the first campaign to go after him from the left for civil society. Yeah. And then and then after that, the, the uh, DACA kids started chaining themselves to the gates and then Occupy happened. And like the my hope also is that, like, you know, if we're, we're given a chance right now to have to fight for just a baseline of democracy, which is like on one hand kind of depressing, like we don't really live in a real democracy right now. It's not that inspiring to say, like, we have to go to the streets to defend the ground that we stand. <laughs> we have to defend the system as shitty as it is. But number one, that's the that's the conditions we're in. And that if, if shit gets worse, it makes it a lot harder to organize. Right. The And I totally the people who say like, oh, if things get worse, it'll wake people up and then no, real change will happen. That's, that's like not a, that's not historically it could always get worse. grounded. Uh, yeah. And yeah. also so like, like in the meantime, people on bread lines, like is that some yeah. kind of desirable yeah. outcome? I don't understand that logic. <laughs> totally. Well, and so like, Joshua, uh, I want to yeah, yeah. I want to ask you about this concept of shutting down the country because you know we have a very recent example in Bolivia in which there was a, a, a coup d'état um, and then there was a basically a social uprising and they were able to shut down the country I mean they have a very large trade union movement um, and they called the general strike when the elections were quote unquote delayed um, they called the general strike and shut down the country for weeks and mm-hmm. and they really did do that and they forced the 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 regime to to give elections and to and to and to accept the results, and it was because of that ability that they had to shut down the country. Obviously, in the United States, we have nowhere near the union density that um, that Bolivia has. Uh, I mean, Bolivia. Some of you know, Bolivia has only 11 million people, but you know, a, a very large organized working class. Of, you know, three or four million people are unionized there. Um, so, how 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 are you thinking? In, like in the eventuality that something does need to to, to go down, how can you shut down the country with such low union density? Yeah. Yes. It's only about 10% of, of workers are organized in unions here. And yeah. that is a different, you know, a lot of the countries that we look towards, they defeat coups within a number of days because everyone's yeah. unionized, right? We don't have that infrastructure, but we do have a lot more time than most other countries have had in terms of responding to coups. And so the thing that makes me hopeful is that number one, if we get to that stage, which is you know months away, if it gets to that stage, um, we think the level of tectonic shifts that will be happening in our society will be escalatory, right? But right now, we already have. So, like for example, the Rochester AFL-CIO, their their central label council, just made the commitment that if there's election tampering, they're going to go on strike, and they're calling on all AFL-CIO affiliates to do the same thing. They represent seventy thousand mm. workers alone. That's just one. That's just one affiliate, right? The Seattle Educators Association just passed a similar uh, resolution. The Detroit Postal Workers is printing up uh, the Choose Democracy pledge with their official union letterhead. Um, The National Union of Healthcare Workers uh, just endorsed a pledge like this. Um, There was just, uh, you know, the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, which is a collaboration between the electrical workers and DSA, just convened a conversation with labor leaders that included, you know, like the flight attendants union head, Sarah Nelson. Mm Um, so labor's really in this discussion and there's ultimately, you know, it's going to depend on whether they decide to go to the map for it, but everything that every day we're getting 
new, more and more signs that they're ready to. And then right. in addition to that, there's, there's, then the question is like, okay, well, what about beyond organized labor? And so there's, there's groups like, there's a group called Shutdown DC, which does have the capability of shutting down the whole like city of DC through block, you know, street blockades, like all kinds of stuff like that. They're doing trainings now specifically for government workers, like career bureaucrats, basically, to not go along with the coup plotters. They have a there's a group called Feds for Democracy that just formed. Uh, there's another group called Democracy Kitchen. They're doing trainings for federal workers uh, to basically disobey the orders that they're given by the Trump administration. Right. So there's a lot of different kinds of signs. There's also groups groups like. Um, Dream Defenders and Sunrise are also organizing students to do a youth strike. And we don't think we actually need, you know, we don't have the capacity to do a general strike. I think it's a bit hyperbolic to imagine that we can actually pull that off. But um, what we're talking about is like we're using the phrase rolling strikes. And so in the in that context, we're talking about like wildcat strikes, walkouts, sit downs, things like that, that are primarily driven by youth and labor. But if it escalates to that point, there's a lot of ways anybody can participate, like through consume, you know, what are, it's called consumer strikes, which is sort of like the logic of a boycott, but it's not targeted towards a specific company. So it's like the holiday season coming up. And like, again, if we're trying to pull out those pillars, capital is kind of ambivalent in different ways. They're trying to see like, well, can we make more money this way or that way? Yeah. In general, capital usually breaks for fascism when faced like a choice with a choice like that. Yeah. But if, if we had people, um, you know, engaging in a mass consumer strike over the holiday season, it would make capital think twice about, you know, what horse they're going to bet on and where they're going to throw their energy. And so this whole idea of peeling off defectors for us is about like in every given moment, using that pillar strategy with the tactics of noncompliance, depending on what's going on, there's different opportunities to pull at the pillars. And so that's why I'm I'm hopeful that we would be able to pull this off if it escalated to that point. I'm also more hopeful that it won't have to escalate to that point. Yeah. But I, I don't think that we need to have the whole country going on a general strike in order to pull it off. Um, okay. I, I think rolling strikes all around the board uh, can do it. And that that's things like and that can also be things like, you know, we're training people to go like shut down and occupy corporations and stuff like that. Um, and, and it could be, you know, shutting down maintenance, transit, mail, trash. Like there's there's ways, there's key pillars to intervene on. And I I'm think saying. why that's important. Um, and I think what our listeners need to understand, uh, part of getting to be our oligarchs is that it's fun. Like when it's a when it's an orderly society and they can go out and do whatever they want and live this beautiful life. It's great to be an oligarch. Now, if society is in shambles and in disarray, what the hell do you get to rule when you're the Mm -hmm. ruling class? Right. And I think that's the pressure that you put on capital. It becomes what's the point of all of this if we can't enjoy it? You know, exactly. and I think that's when you start to see and I think that's when you start to see stuff like the way um, capital and corporations got very early on got behind Black Lives Matter and things like that um, after yeah. George Floyd died. It's it's an easy calculation. It's like, look, man, if this shit going to be riling people up in this way, this is bad for business. Right. Yeah, and that's exactly. always where the pendulum is going to swing when it comes to the, you know, the ruling class. Like what? Like there's no nobody wants to rule over a burnt down castle. OK, <laughs> like that's yeah. not fun. Exactly. 
And and it's, and so that's what I mean, both for capital, but also the courts also basically it's like we're increasing the level of risk, you know, is is that yeah. that's part of how we see see it. And and a lot of the you know, even though capital says like, well, we deserve to make all this money because we take all these like they're really not tolerant of risks. No, you know, no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Joshua, assuming that you are able to stop a coup and Joe Biden wins uh, and becomes the president. You know, I read this morning in CNBC that Wall Street has definitively broken for Joe Biden, has like he's raised much more money than Trump um, has from that particular sector, um, which just reminded me again of like the I obviously prefer Biden. You know, I think we all agree that that Biden in this like choose your fighter analogy um, is is a, is the better enemy to have. But we should have no illusions that Biden is our friend, um, that Biden is going to do anything for us. Um, what is like what is like step one for you um, once the Biden administration takes takes power? That's a great question. I mean, I'm I'm really excited to come out swinging. You know, there's a lot of the so I I support so I my other hat I, I run an organization called the Wildfire Project and we serve groups in a bunch of we we serve labor organizations we serve immigrant rights organizations we serve like a lot of the groups in the movement for Black Lives we serve indigenous sovereignty groups. And the last four years, people have been on defense, and they've and they've been dealing with just like trying to stop their families from being ripped apart. I mean, like, and I think everyone's hungry to go on offense, and also wants to take a nap. <laughs> Not the whole like go back to brunch thing, but like regroup. And so, honestly, for me personally, the first thing I'm going to do is start having some strategy sessions where it's like now we actually can see the terrain ahead of us. But a lot of these groups are like get that. The level of pressure that's exerted on Biden within the first hundred days is going to matter a lot more than pressure later, and so and so there are some groups, you know. And again, like I said, like I, a lot of the movements I come out of, I'm also highly critical of. And one of the things I'm critical of is that they're they're in the streets, they're doing community organizing, they're they're you know we are of of the people, but also we've spent so many years not ever imagining that we'd actually be able to wield power that we like a lot, a lot of our movements don't relate to the electoral arena. They don't. And, um, there are some groups that are an exception to that. So like sunrise, it like has a plan, for example, on pressuring Biden around climate change, which I think is like one of my top priorities. And mm -hmm. like, I think there'll be the conversation around a green new deal is going to shift. And I think we have an opportunity to just start sprinting. And I also think that like the way that ever, everyone I know is fucking exhausted right now. And there's, um, I was listening to an interview with, um, Linda Sarsour, who she was like, she was like, I'm 40 and I feel like I'm 80. And I'm like, yeah, that's everybody <laughs> I know. And like, and I'm, I'm sure that's kind of everybody in general, but definitely for organizers, uh, especially. And so I, I do though think that like nothing builds a movement like winning. And so if, if we are put in this position where we have to like fight for the baseline and like drag this dude across the finish line, the, the networks that we build, the sense of empowerment that people have, like all of that infrastructure stays and then, yeah. and then we start moving it. And that, that's like what I was going to say earlier about the, like the Argentina example, like Argentina was having military coups between the 1930s to 1987. Right. And they didn't have any space to organize when they when they finally stood up for democracy, they also basically ushered in like a milk toast sort of like center left whatever, and they had some governments that then cut deals with the with like the IMF and like did all of this terrible stuff. Oh yeah, 
But the networks that they built from fighting the coup then regenerated a left movement in Argentina that started winning really real gains. They like reunionized most of the country. They reclaimed all of these factories. They collectivized them. And so to me, I'm like, cool, we'll finally have the wind at our sails. And like, it's very exciting for me. I remember when during Obama's campaign, I, I was got like, there was a bunch of us who were like, okay, at what point will liberals get jaded with this dude? Like we knew, like it was before he won. We knew he wasn't going to meet these promises, but we needed, we were like, at what point can we make our time? timing right about like where we can actually fight this guy and not be seen as totally crazy that point never and, came because the liberals are still obsessed <laughs> with him, him and, and, totally and in love, love with him, him. Yeah. they love him now well, more than was, ever honestly yeah yeah well yeah the nostalgia, the nostalgia for obama's but but what's exciting to me is like i think that that you know, anyone who's gotten really engaged doesn't have illusions about Biden. Yeah, Even no one likes love, Biden. <laughs> yeah. No one likes him. <laughs> He's going to be like, so much no easier one. to fight. Biden's going to be the easiest opponent that we've had in my lifetime, I think. He's going to be easier than Clinton, definitely easier than Bush, easier than Obama. And then, uh, you know, Trump is like a brick wall. Like, that's just, you know. And so I'm actually, like, really excited to fight Biden. It's um, And that's that's to me, like, when I'm talking to other activists who are like, this dude sucks, I'm like, Yeah. Don't you want to fight someone who sucks in a way that you actually can have the upper hand? Right. You know, yeah. rather than someone who sucks in a way that's like, you know, you're facing a tank that has its gun pointed at you, you know? So I, I, I'm actually hopeful about that. All yeah. right. That's, that's beautiful, man. I think the message to everybody checking this out is that the fight, again, I, I, and, I, and I just want to remind people about 2008 and that feeling after Barry had won, that it was some actual victory, right? It was sort of, it seemed like some destination of some racial harmony, all of this kumbaya Hell shit yeah. in America. <laughs> it felt like utopia. Yeah. We had finally reached utopia. Moses had finally brought us to the promised land. Um, and that was clearly, obviously not the case. I think people have their, um, their um, eyes open. And um, as Josh just mentioned, be ready for the fight. So we got to move on to end off the show to, man, this guy Tom Cotton is, he is something different, man. Like his level of ambition, self-assuredness, uh, just he clearly thinks very highly of himself. But, and 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 that's problematic because he's just this average white dude, clearly. Um, but what I think makes him somebody that we need to pay attention to because he absolutely has his finger on the pulse of the purest form of right-wing-ism in this country. Like, he knows the buttons to push. When a guy takes out a New York Times, fucking New York Times op-ed to say we should roll tanks out into the streets to yeah. corral American citizens, like, that dude has some balls, and he's a psychopath, um, but, you know, that being said, he's one of the, the leading candidates to emerge in 2024, I know that sounds absurd, right, yeah. that we're in the midst of basically the most important election of our lives, I always love when people say that, they say that every single election, but, yeah, you know, yeah. the most important election of our lives and we already have to sort of look askance at 2024. And that's because Tom Cotton is already campaigning, right? And, you, <laughs> and like whenever you, you hear the words Iowa and New Hampshire associated to a politician, we know what that means. That means such and such is ready to run. 
And Tom Cotton, as I as I said at the top of the show, uh, the pathetic Democratic Party. My God, they couldn't even field a, a challenger for this guy in Arkansas. He's running on. Unop- he's not running unopposed. There's some cranky libertarian candidate out there in Arkansas, which we know that guy's going to get crushed. Um He's because he's essentially running unopposed. He's going out and he's doing his thing. He's taking out ads in all kinds of states. Um, again, when you go in, you, when you go to the cornfields and and shake the hands of potato farmers in the Midwest, and you know those kinds of things. Four years outside of an election, we know what that means. Um, I just yeah. want to know what you guys think about. Just direction. This is all the, the direction. This is all headed for the GOP because again, Tom Cotton is about as right wing as it gets in that yeah. party, and he seems to be hell bent on trying to run for president. Well, here's the. I mean, here's why this is important to to be looking at at this point is because the nightmare scenario of a Biden administration is that they it's that it's basically a repeat of of Obama on steroids and that there's this incredible economic crisis, like really one of the biggest economic crises that we've had in a hundred years. And that they, they sort of under deliver on the response, you know, that they, that the response is just kind of half-assed. They don't go all the way. They don't really like improve people's lives. People's lives keep getting shittier um, as a result that they, and, and that fuels as it always does, every single resurgent right-wing movement comes on the back of the economic crisis and the failure of a liberal, um, you know, ruling regime to respond to it. Um, that this fuels like an even bigger backlash to Trumpism, and the, you know, Trump, um, we all hate him, but we also recognize that he's kind of lazy and kind of dumb and and doesn't really understand how the stuff works. <laughs> right. um, and you know, he's got like a he's got like a feel for stuff, but he doesn't he doesn't know how he doesn't the know the nuts and bolts. Power. Yeah, he doesn't know the nuts and bolts. He's no and, Dick Cheney. So the nightmare is always like, what if Trump but competent, right? Like you know. Like, what if that happened? Um, you know, we like, what if, like, it was the Bush administration staffed by, like, these kind of career, um, uh, competent Republican psychopaths, but, like, more, right? That's the nightmare. And that's what Tom Cotton represents. So that's, like, why it's so important for to push Biden and to not have any illusions about, about Biden, because if the Democrats do not respond to this economic crisis and the ecological crisis and all the myriad crises that we face, um, the sort of steady decline of the average American life, uh, they will, there will be a right-wing backlash, and Tom Cotton will be at the forefront of it. You got to respect that long-term planning that he's yeah. got. That's that's impressive. It's also a reason why I mean, I really think a lot, you know, we'll see what I mean, if let's say we do get Trump out of office, that dude's not leaving popular culture. Right. Like he's going to be in in our faces still, uh, you know, and I don't know whether that's like a media company or what. And I don't know what it means if his base is transferable to some other demagogue or not? Like, I don't know what, like... That's what uh, I, I, I... That's what, Does that's Tom my Cotton have thing. his magic? <laughs> no, that's, that's my hopeful thing. Look at Tom he Cotton's doesn't. face. He's got like a, he's got like a dopey... Uh, Eminently punchable yeah. face. Yes. Yeah. And, and Trump, Trump, you know, once the, the base... Yeah, very not... Yeah, just a, like a dumb guy. Just like a doofus. You know? And, and Trump is, you know, like once they got the real hit, you know, like once they got the hit of Trump, like they can't go for the soft stuff anymore. Like they need that. They need someone who's that good at owning the libs, right? That's Trump's appeal. One, like 90% of it 
is that he drives the libs crazy and these people hate the libs and that's why they love him. I mean, that's just, that's been the conservative movement's um, modus operandi for decades is the, the people who do really well from Ronald Reagan to Phyllis Schlafly to George W. Bush to Trump is the people who make the libs hair go on fire. The people who make the the people who the libs love, like John McCain or Marco example, Rubio, love John McCain. <laughs> he kept on getting owned in elections. The Republicans yeah, totally. don't want some guy who has like <laughs> liberal respect. They want a guy who the the libs fucking hate. You know, and Trump is such a such a strange such a strange way to troll the libs. You know, like there's no one like him. There's no one like Trump. Um, so that's my hope is that is that they once they got a hit of the real thing, they can't go to like some Tom Cotton bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you. The, and the crazy thing too, what, what, what's fascinating about this election cycle is I think a lot of the stuff that endeared Trump to Republican voters was the anti-immigrant stuff, um, which he's completely basically abandoned this cycle. Yeah, no which, more build the wall. No, he doesn't anymore. even talk about the wall anymore. It's over. It's crazy. But like mm-hmm. what what endeared him to them was finally some. Somebody saying that shit out loud. Finally, somebody saying the truth. Mexicans are rapists. Duh. We all know it. They're all freaking coke dealers. Come on, man. They're getting our kids high on smack. Thank you. And he's completely abandoned that. So I wonder, you know, part of it makes me wonder how somebody's supposed to energize that base of people if the guy who invented it has even yeah. moved away from it. And I, I, I just can't imagine that Tom Cotton would come out and say, you know, let's start hanging niggers again. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I think that would make him very popular amongst those people. <laughs> but I don't know that he would actually do it. Yeah, my hope, too, is that, like, even if a Biden administration doesn't deliver for people, people's lives get worse. It makes them, like you know, easily seduced by authoritarianism. If we have a big enough left that's distinguished from the liberals, where at least, you know, a lot of those people aren't necessarily going to come to the left. But this, I mean, this in many ways was also, you know, like and I, this one of the reasons why I'm glad to be on the show. This was part of, you know, Michael Brooks's project, right? Of like, be accessible, be relatable, distinguish yourself from that bullshit. And that if there's a visible wing of the left fighting Biden, um, we might actually be able to siphon off a larger base of disaffected, angry people that like can also get over some of the culture war divisions and shit. I mean, God knows that's the hope, man. Um, <laughs> anyway, I just thought that people should keep their eye on young Tom Cotton. That guy is freaking hilarious and scary and just ridiculous all at the same time. I want to thank our guests. Joshua Khan Russell, man, that this was incredible. Um, we generally just never have guests, but the past few weeks we've been going freaking crazy with luminaries like yourself and you know Bessmer and Anna, of course, of TYT. Um, just thank you for coming on and giving the people, you know, that knowledge about what actual dissent looks like, what it means to dissent from the power structure, what it means to exert our collective will on these asshole rich people. (laughs) And so I'm happy that you were able to come on and do that for us. Of course, Nando held us down last week, killing it as always. Our producer, Rob Lopez, you know, can't thank you enough for the work you do for us, Rob. Um, make sure you become a Patreon of Count the Dinks. That's patreon.com backslash Count the Dinks. Support us. That's how we're able to put out content like this for you guys. Uh, of course, make sure you're listening 
to Let's Pot It Out, Nando's hilarious entourage recap pod, which is just, you know, it, it's such a time capsule, that show of uh, about just a special time in American pop culture. Uh, you guys need to watch that. And Josh, can you please tell the people where to find you, the things that you're working on and how they can learn more about it and check it out? Yeah, I'll give a couple things. So the Choose Democracy pledge, and if you want to go to one of our trainings, is choosedemocracy.us. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Joshua Con Russell, I, and I'm I'm thinking of coming back on to Twitter, which is just mm. Josh Con Russell. So I'm I'm like getting yeah. So if it's... you want to, I'll, I'll I'll make a debut there soon. I think. I mean, I, yeah, whatever. Also, there's another organ. There, I run an organization called the Wildfire Project, wildfireproject.org. If you didn't get too many things to follow up on there, there's another one. All good. All right, perfect. Yeah. We will see you guys next week, man. We're out of here. Peace.